Good morning. I bring you greetings from Adrian, Missouri, and uh, glad to be here. Uh, Eileen and I are on a two-week tour. Uh, we left uh, two weeks ago yesterday. Uh, we have uh, three sons, and all three of our sons, praise the Lord, are serving the Lord and in ministry, serving the Lord as pastors, and we are certainly grateful for that. And so we began in southwest Iowa after leaving Missouri, and then uh, to, uh, that was our youngest son and his family, and then up to a suburb of Chicago to our oldest son and his family, and then over to Owasso, Crenna, Michigan uh, to see Donald and Tracy and uh, the boys leaving after this service shortly to start our way home. Uh, it's about a 12-hour drive uh, back uh, to Adrian, and uh, Eileen has a ladies' Bible study that she uh, will be teaching on Tuesday morning, and uh, so we can't make the whole drive on, on Monday, so we needed to break it up a little bit, and uh, so that's the reason that we'll be leaving after the service this morning. Thank the Lord for the opportunity of just sharing uh, the Word of God uh, here uh, with uh, you today. Uh, grateful to uh, God and His grace and goodness uh, in my life and in our family in our family's life, we just praise and thank the Lord. Uh, we are so proud. You know, it's it's just a great thing as a parent uh, to take a tour like this and stop in three different places and in reality three different churches and uh, just uh, hear uh, good reports about uh, your children, about your sons, their ministry, uh, how people love them and appreciate them and care for them. And so uh, we are certainly blessed of God and are grateful to God uh, for His grace in our life. Look forward to just opening uh, the Word of God uh, with you this morning. We're going to be talking about two verses of Scripture Two verses of Scripture that are often, I believe, uh, misunderstood, misapplied, and misused in the life of many, many believers, especially uh, in times of uh, what we might call testings or troubles or trials or tribulations. Uh, often uh, these verses are alluded to, they're referred to, uh, sometimes uh, in their entirety, but most often that's not the case. Most often it's just a part uh, of these verses uh, that are alluded to or quoted or spoken in some fashion or some way. So I invite you to take your Bibles and if you would open them with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I trust that you know uh, in your time of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ that uh, the book of Romans is the New Testament book of doctrine. It's the New Testament book of teaching. It is so, so rich for us, and that's the case as we come to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. I draw your attention to verses 28 and 29 where the Apostle Paul writes, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. 
For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I share those verses with you because many times you will hear Christians or you will hear believers refer to the first part of verse 28. And normally just to the first phrase or two of verse 28 where the Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good. Have you heard that? Have you heard people share that with you? Have you heard people uh, uh, bring that up? You know, I find it interesting uh, to just uh, make some comparisons to when that happens. Uh, So let me give you a a couple of comparisons. Uh, uh, You go to the doctor's office, uh, you have your yearly appointment, uh, uh, he draws your blood, uh, uh, he checks you out, and uh, he comes in and meets with you and he says, listen, I just want to tell you, you are doing well, you are doing great, you're doing wonderful, whatever it is, just keep it up because you're doing so well. And you come home and you tell your husband or wife, hey, listen, I just want to tell you. And we know that all things work together for good, right? Now that's usually not the case. But if the doctor were to come into you and meet with you and say, listen, I've got some bad news for you. We've discovered a real problem. There's something we have to address. It may involve surgery. I don't really know what the prognosis might be after that. That's when you may come home and say to your husband, your wife, you know, And we know that all things work together for good. Don't you find that interesting in times of of good news, in times of rejoicing? Your employer comes into you and says, listen, I want to tell you, we're going to promote you. And with the promotion comes an increase of, of, uh, of pay. And uh, we want you to uh, understand that's going to start next Monday. You don't run home and say, to somebody, and we know that all things work together for good, but if the employer comes to you and says, I've got some bad news for you, uh, we're going to have to let you go, and uh, your last day will be a week from this coming Friday, and you come home and share that with your family, and as a Christian, you say, and we know that all things work together for good. Don't you find that interesting? That normally when the news is bad or when the situation is bad or difficult, that's when we normally hear this verse or just a part of this verse shared by believers. I'd like us to just look at these verses quickly this morning. Uh, I asked Donald, and you'll have to uh, understand that I've called him Donald his whole life, and so I can't change now, and so I'll refer to him as Donald. So I asked Donald, well, how much time do I have? And he says, well, I'm normally done about 12 or 5 after 12. And uh, so... uh, He said, you're going to have to really be on your toes uh, to uh, meet uh, that criteria. So we'll try to move through these verses quickly this morning. If you happen to uh, pick up an outline, Uh, normally I preach with a PowerPoint and have it on the screen, which makes it a lot easier to follow along. Uh, But uh, that's not the case this morning. I didn't bring the PowerPoint along. I just happened to have this message with me. So let's look at it together. I want to begin this morning with a precise promise. Here is the precise promise, and we know that all things work together for good. And the Apostle Paul uses those two words, we know, we know, we know. Listen, folks, just what do we know? What is it 
that we know. I suggest to you in light of these two verses that one of the things that we do know is that sometimes life can be cruel, unfair, a little messy, a little difficult. We know that. We know that to be true. And we know that life can be that way. But in light of the fact that life can throw you some curveballs and there can be some difficult times in life, there's many other things we know as well. Let me share four of them with you. We know, first of all, the sovereignty of God. We know that God is sovereign. I want to tell you, that's a wonderful thing to know in light of what our country's been going through, especially these last six months, to know that God is in control, that God is sovereign. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, the apostle Paul says this, who works all things, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Simply that God is sovereign. God is the one who is in control. We know the sovereignty of God. Secondly, we know that the saints are loved by God. God loves his people. God loves his children. God loves his family. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, we read this verse of scripture. The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, yea, listen carefully, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Just to think that God loves us with an everlasting love. You ought to know that. I ought to know that. Why? Because life is messy. Life can be difficult. Life can be hard. There can be uh, different things that God allows to come into life. And I must remember that I'm loved by a heavenly father with an everlasting love. And I must remember that he's in control. He's sovereign above all things. Thirdly, I know the safety that we find in God. God is, God is our safety. In fact, I simply wrote down, listen to these words, our safety we find in God because he is our refuge, he's our protector, he's our keeper, our shield, our rock, our sustainer, our friend, our shepherd, our deliverer, our savior. He's all of those things. And so we know, we know, we ought to know, we should know that we are safe and secure in the arms of a heavenly father who loves us with an everlasting love and will demonstrate and show his sovereignty in our life. And fourthly, something we should know, we should know the script the script that God may have for our lives. Because he's sovereign, we should know there's a script he has planned for our life. Here's the difficult part. The difficult part is that script may include trials, testings, troubles, tribulations, turmoil. They may include those things, folks. So although... Paul says, and we know. We know he's sovereign. You know, he loves us with an everlasting love and that we find our safety and security in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what about when 
All of those things come into the script that God has for us. Let me remind you some verses. Is this thing staying put where it's supposed to? Okay. You know, the, these newfangled things. I'm, I'm just an old-fashioned preacher. I preached for years without anything, all right? Uh, we were taught in Bible college, God gave you a pair of lungs, use them, all right? And don't be afraid to speak up and speak out. And uh, uh, so I've only had one of these contraptions on just a couple times. And normally, normally for me, it's a lapel mic. So uh, this will give me all kinds of fits. I'm just telling you, this is going to, uh, and uh, this is liable to come off here in about three and a half minutes, okay? Uh, where was I? Let me just remind you some verses. Uh, how about James chapter 1? Now listen carefully. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, greeting. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Listen, can you wrap your, can you wrap your head around that? You're to count it all joy. All joy when trials and troubles and tribulations and testings and turmoils come into your life. How many of you would believe that if it wasn't written in the Bible? I don't know that I would. I'm supposed to be joyful when life throws me a curve, when life gets messy, life gets difficult. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith works patience. And then he goes on to say that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But count it, count it all joy. Paul said almost the same thing in Romans chapter 5. Where Paul said, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into this grace and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. We glory in tribulation also? Yes, because we know tribulation brings forth patience and patience hope. And hope because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. Here in Romans 8, 28, under a precise promise, there is our certainty. We are certain. We know these truths about our Lord. There's not only our certainty, but there's our circumstances. That's point B there in your notes, 1B. Our circumstances. We know, here's the two words, we know all things. Now listen carefully this morning, class. We know all things, whether they be positive or whether they be negative. All things, positive or negative. Whether they be the blessings and benefits of our Christian life, and God be thanked, they're many, aren't they? The blessings and benefits of God that he has given and placed and brought into our life, and he's the source of those things. And we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for each blessing. Thank you for each benefit. I'm reminded of the verses in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. So whether they be positive, whether they be positive, we're to be thankful. We know all things, all positive things, but as well, all negative things. It says in your notes there, errors and mistakes, but I think maybe I'd rather say things like this, heartaches and headaches. Yeah. 
the hard things of life, the difficult things of life, those are part of the all things. We know all things work together for good. Let's think of a couple, couple of examples. You know them well. Uh, you remember an Old Testament man uh, whose life unfolds for us in Genesis 37 through Genesis chapter 50? His name is Joseph. And everything about his life in those chapters are positive, right? Starts out in Genesis 37, hated by his brothers, who then jumped him, beat him, threw him in a pit, took him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites, who took him down to Egypt. And he was put on the slave market and he was bought by Potiphar and became the head of Potiphar's home until Potiphar's wife uh, uh, wanted to uh, uh, have immoral relationships with Joseph and he, and he turned and he ran from her and she spoke a lie and ended up Joseph spending what? Two years in prison. Innocent man, two years in prison, met a baker and a butler of Pharaoh there, uh, interpreted their dreams. And when their dreams came to pass, all he asked was one thing, just remember me before Pharaoh. And he was forgotten. And he was forgotten. Till Pharaoh had a dream. Remember the dreams of Pharaoh? Remember the seven fat cows and the seven lean cows and the stocks of grain? Remember that? And someone said, I remember there was a guy in prison who interpreted our dreams. And Joseph came, uh, came out of prison and then served as second in command of Egypt for all those years. But hard, difficult things in Joseph's life. But he knew. He knew whether they, whether they be positive or whether they be negative, that God could use them to his glory. Say, preacher, how do you know that? Because when you come to Genesis chapter 50, after dad Jacob has passed away, and now Joseph has to deal with his brothers, and his brothers come to him and said, listen, we want to just ask you, take it easy on us. Don't, don't take revenge or vengeance on us, and, and, and don't do evil to us like we did to you. And the Bible says it broke Joseph's heart to hear them say that. And then Joseph, Joseph told them something like this, what you did to me, you meant for evil. But God meant it for good. Wow. All of those hard and difficult things. And then you think of another Old Testament man by the name of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, as a teenager, taken captive by the Babylonians, taken over to Babylon uh, uh, to live there as a, uh, as a servant and, and, and to learn the Babylonian language and any number of things. This man by the name of Daniel, who was a captive, who was beaten, this man uh, scorned, this man Daniel, who was hated, this man Daniel, betrayed. This man, Daniel, later found himself in the lion's den. And at the very beginning of his ordeal, remember when he had to deal with the prince of the eunuchs, and it says in Daniel 1.8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he might not defile himself with the king's food nor, which, nor with the wine which he drank. So he requested the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel says, I know some things. I know some things in my life that God is sovereign, that God loves his people, that safety and security is found in the Lord. And regardless of what God brings into my life, whether they be positive or negative things, I'm determined in my life to live 
for God. So much so that we find this verse of scripture in Daniel 6, verse 28. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. God prospered his life. His life isn't filled with just positive things. A lot of negative things in his life. A lot of hard things in his life. Just like Joseph. And both of them prospered by the mighty hand of God in their life. We find our certainty here. We know. We find our circumstances here. All things. Thirdly, there ought to be our conviction Here's our conviction. And we know that all things work together for good. Got to listen carefully now. Work together for good. That doesn't mean that all things in your life or my life will result in good experiences. You see, we get this idea that, well, all things are going to, they're just going to work together for good. Somehow God's going to take this bad or difficult or hard experience in life, and God's going to make it good. No, that's not what it's saying. It's not saying that at all. He's not necessarily referring to here of just good experiences in earthly life or in our earthly life. Although, as we mentioned earlier, what we have plenty of those. We have plenty of those good experiences that God has allowed to come into our life. I want to just share two thoughts here, here with you. Well, really three thoughts. They're in there, your notes, all right? Number one, the effect. The effect. What's the effect? Uh, I, took, uh, I took two years of Greek when I was in uh, Bible college, and uh, the last day of Greek class is the last day that I used Greek, all right? Uh, you needed to have two years of a foreign language to get a Bachelor of Arts degree, and so I took Greek, and after the last day the class was over, I was, I was done with it. Our Greek professor said, now you use all of this for the rest of your life, and you'll be doing this and that. No, when I got done with Greek, I was done with Greek, all right? Uh, but here's something that you found out. Other guys are Greek scholars, and the Greek word here, when he says work together for good, is the Greek word synergio. That doesn't mean anything to you, synergio. We get our English word synergy. Synergy is the English word derived from the Greek word which has this meaning. It's the cooperation of differing factors for the purpose of working together. It is the cooperation of differing factors for the purpose of working together. You say, that doesn't mean much to me either, preacher. Well, let's look at the evidence. That's point number two, the evidence. Where do you see that? Could I suggest to you that you see that happening in Christian marriages? How long... Were you married before you discovered you weren't exactly alike? Huh? I, I venture to say it didn't take very long. I, I venture to say that was, a, that was a very short learning process. But somehow there was the cooperation of differing factors for the purpose of working together. So somehow you and your wife or you and your husband... 
uh, dealt with those differences in your life, different, uh, different uh, uh, cultures it could have been. It could have been just uh, different upbringing, uh, different, could be different values, different thoughts. It could be any of those things. And somehow, by God's grace and in God's goodness, you're able to work those, work those things out and cooperate together in those areas, working together. You see the same thing uh, in families. We had three boys, three boys. And I want to tell you, it was, a, it was a miracle of God that all three of our boys were exactly alike. All three of them, exactly alike. Well, you say, now listen, preacher, we know better than that. Yeah, they were all different. They were all, so how do you start with two people who are different as a husband and wife and then add three sons that are all different how do you do that and have a home that functions and works together? How do you do that? Synergy. That's synergy. That's how it works. And you see it in the working place. Certainly you that are, that are still working and have jobs, I'm sure you're working with people that you don't always see eye to eye with them. You have different values, different ideas, but somehow you work through those things and you work those things out together. That's the evidence, the evidence. And that's followed then by the explanation. What's the explanation? And we know that all things synergy, somehow God puts it all together, makes them work together, and they work together for good. Where in the world do we find here the explanation? It's found in verse 29. The explanation is found to be conformed to the image of his son. So God takes the two people who are married, work together for his honor, for his glory. Takes the family, different people, puts them together, works through them to his glory, at your job, in your neighborhood, in your extended family, in your church, in your church. Not everybody thinks alike. Not, not everybody has the same ideals, not everybody, but somehow God takes a church family with all different kinds of people from all different kinds of backgrounds Praise God, the one thing that we have in common is we have the same Savior by the same grace, through the same faith, through the same Word of God, don't we? Isn't that right? You can come from all different parts of the world, but what do we have in common? We have in common our, our wonderful salvation. Guess what, folks? We were all saved the same way. It was all by God's grace, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So we were all saved by grace and through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We realized that we were lost sinners on our way to a Christless eternity in hell. Nothing we could do to save ourselves. But God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. And praise God, God brought somebody into your life. Maybe a mom and dad, maybe a grandma or grandpa, maybe an uncle, maybe an aunt, maybe a neighbor. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, maybe it was a camp worker. But God brought somebody into 
into your life to share with you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by God's grace in your life, you realize that you were that lost sinner on your way to a Christless eternity in hell, that Jesus Christ died on the cross and your place in your stead died for your sins. And you realize that he did that so that he could save you from your sins and you received and believed the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Guess what? We were all saved that way. You say, preacher, how do you know we're all saved that way? Because there's only one way to be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And somehow God in his grace takes people from all different environments, all different cultures, all different ideals, brings them together in an institution that he calls the local church, and somehow by God's grace we get along. <laughs> somehow by God's grace we serve him together. Somehow by God's grace we see his hand of blessing upon us. You want to know what that is? That's synergy. That's what it is. And we know that all things work together for good. So there's our certainty, our circumstances, our conviction, and then there's our condition. With those things in mind, and we know that all things work together for good, here ought to be our condition. We should be encouraged, not discouraged. Encouraged, not discouraged. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, you read this. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time, are, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The sufferings of this present time do pale in comparison to the glory which shall be revealed in us. The problems of life shouldn't overwhelm us or overcome us. Remember the little verse of Scripture over there in 1 John chapter 5? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And our problems should never overwhelm us, never overcome us. Why? Because we have the promises of God. What promises? That he's sovereign. That he loves you with an everlasting love. That you find in him your place of refuge and safety and retreat and shelter. You find all of those things in him. Because regardless of the script that he has for your life, all things work together for good for us to be conformed to the image of his dear son. Remember, that's the purpose in it all and we have those promises of God. And God has the power to work together with his people to always produce good. I want to say that again. God has the power to always work with his people to always produce good. That's God's power. To work with us if we're willing to allow him to work in our life and to produce good. What? The good things of being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things are being worked out in your life and in my life. I want to tell you folks, that is a precise promise. And we know that all things 
work together for good. After a precise promise, there comes a peculiar people. Now, this thing is really getting to me, all right? I feel like you ladies that like those long dangly earrings, you know, and I just feel like, is this this bothering you? Do What? Okay. (laughs) Do you care? Do you care? Does this, can I just speak up and use the lungs the Lord gave me? Can I do that? All right. Boy, this, this, this will make, I, listen, that doesn't make you feel any better. It makes me feel a whole lot better. All right. So uh, we'll just go with that. I'm just a visiting speaker. Listen, you don't have to like it. You don't have to like me. I'll be gone. I'll be gone. All right. So let's move from a precise promise. People back in the sound room go, oh boy, this guy taking that out. All right. We're going from a precise promise, secondly, to a peculiar people. This precise promise is given to a peculiar people, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Don't you find it interesting that a lot of Christians, when they quote part of verse 28, just happen to leave that off. All right. Just happen to leave that part off. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I've got to move fast. Here we go. Now we're shifting into second gear. All right. Are you ready with me? All right. There's a confession, a confession to them, to them. Well, we better understand who the to them are. So you got to look back in Romans chapter eight. Let me give it to you quickly. It may be in your notes. I'm not sure. In verse one, it's to them who are not under condemnation. In verse two, it's to them who are not under bondage. To, to them, in verses nine through eleven, it's those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In verse seventeen, it's to those who are heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. In verses twenty six and twenty seven, it's to them who have an effective prayer life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Those are the people, and we know that all things work together for good. To those people, those people, the people of verse 1, 2, 9 through 11, 17, and 26 through 27. And this pledge, that's number one in your notes, this pledge is to God's people, his peculiar people, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who in time past were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. We are his peculiar people, those peculiar people that he happens to love with an everlasting, eternal love who says to us that he will work together in our life to work out all things for good so that those things will conform us to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's pledge to his people. And these people are those, point two in your notes, these people are those who have been redeemed. It's people who have been saved and born again. Not to those who've had some, well, preacher, I just want to tell you, I had some religious experience experience in my life. I was in the home of a lady one time, and, and I was uh, sitting at her uh, uh, kitchen, t- kitchen table. Uh, her husband and that were there, and uh, she happened to be up and uh, looking out the kitchen window, and, and I was asking them about their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, preacher, you don't have to worry about me. I was washing dishes one day, looking out the window, and I just felt the loving arms of Jesus wrap around me. I said, boy, that's great, that's wonderful, but that's not what the Bible says about how someone is saved. 
Someone is saved according to John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. What do you have to do to be saved? You have to believe. What do you have to believe? I'm a lost sinner on my way to hell. Nothing I can do to save myself. Jesus Christ died on the cross in my stead, in my place, so that I could receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's what I have to believe. And if I believe that, what do I have to do? I have to receive God's gift. What is God's gift? God's gift is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And he offers it to me as a gift. And what do I have to do? I have to receive it. We all understand gift giving. Someone offers you a gift. I used to be a part of a prison ministry. I used to be in a room of uh, uh, probably not as big as these two sections in a prison, in a pod in prison with somewhere between 40 and 45 convicts in this room where the guard shuts the door and locks it and I'm in there with all of these prisoners. And I would look at those prisoners and, and I, would, I would simply uh, say the same thing to them that I'm saying to you about receiving Jesus Christ, God's gift. And I would say to them, listen, man, let me ask you. Someone offers you a gift. What can you do with it? They were pretty smart. They said you can either receive it or you can reject it. If you receive God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, you're saved and born again. If you reject it, you're lost and still unsaved and on your way to a Christless and an eternity that God calls hell. These promises in Romans 8, 28 and 29 are for those who have been gloriously saved and born again. And there's many other verses, uh, but we won't go there. There is a confession. There is secondly a command. Who love God? This peculiar people are to those who love God. For just a minute, let's talk about this kind of love. Three things. Number one, it's a reciprocal love. It's a reciprocal love. 1 John 4.10, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. What is that talking about? We can only love God because he first loved us. He demonstrated that love in the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reciprocal love. God, I love you because you first loved me. And sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for my sins on Golgotha's hill. And so, Lord, I love you. I love you back for doing that. It's a reciprocal love. Secondly, it's a relational love. If you have that relationship with God, then because you have this relationship with God, you're to love him. Remember the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. In Jesus' day, in Matthew chapter 22, a lawyer came to Jesus and said, uh, What's the greatest commandment? And what did Jesus say? You shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the sec that's the first commandment. And the second commandment is like the first. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so that makes it a relational love. I have a relationship with God. He is my heavenly father. I am his child. And so because of that relationship, I love him. That's not hard to understand. You have a relationship with your husband or wife? You love them because you're in that relationship with them. You have a relationship with your children? You love them because you have that relationship with them. 
And if you have a relationship with God, you love him because of that relationship. I was just at some board meetings at Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary in Ankeny, Iowa. I heard the president of the school, Jim Tillerson, say something like this. When I get to heaven, I don't want to have to try to convince God that I love him. You got to write that down and think about it. When I get to heaven and stand before God, I don't want to have to try to convince him then that I love him. I need to demonstrate now that I love him because he first loved me. And because I have a relationship with him, I'm going to return that love. And then thirdly, it's a reflective love. That's easy. It's, it's just something that needs to be seen and evidenced in our life. We shouldn't have to try to convince anybody how much we love God. Now, I want to tell you, I've been a pastor a long time. I've talked to a lot of people down through the years. And I'd hate to try to figure out how many people have tried to convince me as their pastor or the pastor of the church where I was serving the Lord how much they love God. Why did they feel they had to do that? Preacher, I just want to tell you how much I love God. I just want to tell you, preacher, how much I appreciate God. I just have to, because there was little or no evidence in their life that they loved God. And because of that, they had to try to convince me. Just like some husbands have to convince their wives they love them. I don't want to spend any time with you. I don't want to take you out to dinner. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to meet your needs. Under the, but I just want to tell you how much I love you. Hey, man, how, how long do you think that would go? Huh? Or vice versa, with the wives to their husbands? No. But for some reason, we think we can get away with that with God. So someday when I stand before him, I don't want to have to try to convince him how much I love him. It should be reflected in my life. So there's a confession. There's a command. Thirdly, there's a confidence a confidence to them who are the called according to his purpose. Those, this peculiar people, we have a confidence because we know it was all God's plan. It was all God's plan. What did God do? He called you, he convicted you, he converted you, he changed you, and someday he's going to come for you. Aren't you happy about that? Aren't you happy? He called you. You don't come to the Lord without him calling you. And then the Holy Spirit convicted you that you were a sinner lost in your trespasses and sins. Convicted you that Jesus is the only Savior. And so you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. And when you did, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. He changed you. He changed you. And you were converted. And someday, praise God, he's going to come for us. Isn't that what he promised? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again. The angel said to the, uh, the, the disciples in Acts 1, the same Jesus who you've seen go up into heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. He's going to come for us again. It's God's purpose for those who have this relationship with him to fulfill their responsibility to love him and live for him. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. 
John 13, 17, the Lord just given me this, John 13, 17. Surely someone else has memorized John 13, 17. <laughs> Let me look real quick, unless you beat me. If you beat me, just, uh, just read it out. Yeah. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. It's not enough just to come and listen some preacher preach. Not enough just to shake your head yes every once in a while, you know. Not enough. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. If you do them in your life. So that takes us from a precise promise to peculiar people to the third point, quickly. A practical prophet. And that's not prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, a man. It's P-R-O-F-I-T, prophet. I have to be careful when I do that because years ago as a young pastor, I was just preaching along. Man, I was all excited. I was all geared up. You know what I was preaching on? I was preaching on the value of work that God created. Adam put him in the garden and he was to work. Listen, listen, listen. Work came before the fall. A lot of Christians think it came after if that's a curse of God that we have to go to work. You know, that work, that's God's, no. God put Adam in the garden, what, to till it and to keep it, all right? Also told him to multiply and some. But hey, I was waxing eloquent on work, man. I was telling people, man, God wants you to work, work. We got to be people who work. Let's work and work. And then I got so good, I said, I'm going to spell it to him. W-O-R-C-K. <laughs> I don't know how I did that. So I want to be careful. Prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. There is a practical prophet. It involves these things very quickly. A conformity to be conformed to the image of his son in verse 29. That's the good of verse 28. God works everything for good. What good? To be conformed to the image of his son. A couple of things here. God is the cause. God working together in the predicaments of your life and my life that produces us to conform to God's that what God conform to what God desires to see in us. It's Paul's prayer in Philippians 3:10 that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. So that's what God's purpose. God is the cause. We're the effect. What's the effect? What's the effect? That God can take all things, use them in our life to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what most of those things are going to be? Most of those things are going to be positive, happy, God-blessed blessings that come from God. But some of them may have to be difficult, hard Trials and tests that God allows, but he works together with us to conform us to the image of his son. There's a conformity. Secondly, there is a conclusion. Every congregation loves that word. A conclusion. Here's a conclusion. Can we reach conformity to Christ's likeness without going through adversity? Can we become like the Lord Jesus Christ without going through adversity. Look at verse 37 there in Romans, uh, in Romans chapter 8. Would you look at verse 37? Uh, my pages are sticking together. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us still. 
So although we have, so although we may have disease and difficulties and disasters and even death that we have to face, in spite of all of that, we can be conformed to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. Now let me give you just a couple of things. Number one, here's the picture. The picture is the adversity of Christ. Here is a verse you've got to wrap your arms around. It's Hebrews 5, 8. Though he, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, was a son. Now listen to this. Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Wow. You would never think of that, would you, of Christ? That he had to learn obedience by the things that he suffered. And so God allows some difficult things in our life for us to do some suffering to be conformed to the image of his son. There's the adversity of Christ. There is the adversity of Christians. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says this, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through many trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So there's adversity of Christ. He learned obedience by suffering. And for God to conform us to the image of his son, oh, there will be many, many blessings and benefits, but there may be some difficult things allowed to come, the Lord allows to come into our life, but they will all pale to the glory that we will have someday in his presence. So there's the picture, there's the perspective. We must learn to accept the good as well as the bad. We must admit that suffering may be necessary and be used as a positive thing as God's plan in our lives. We must admit that. God may allow some hard things in my life, but he will work together with me to use them for my good, to conform me to be like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the perspective. Then thirdly, there's the prayer. The prayer is found in verses 26 and 27 of Romans chapter 8. Because here's what happens. Number one, the saint may pray. The Christian may pray. The believer may pray. What are, what are we going to pray? What are we going to pray? The employer says you've lost your job. We're going to pray, Lord, give me a job. Lord, give me a job. The doctor says you've got some terminal illness. Lord, take it away. Lord, deliver me from it. Lord, cure me from it. And we may pray those prayers over and over and over again. I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul prayed three times for the thorn in his flesh to be taken away. And God said no. So we pray, the saint may pray, take it away. Paul did three times in 2 Corinthians 12, 8. The sovereign, that is God, may say, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Because I am working together with the predicaments in your life with the assurance that you know I'm sovereign, that I love you with an everlasting love, and I have your good intentions in mind, and it's going to work out to your good and to my glory. That's what he says. That's what he says. And that brings us then to the saint may pray, the sovereign may say. That brings us thirdly then, the significance may be this. Here's the significance. Lord, use this in my life to make me more like Christ.
Preacher, do you really mean that? The doctor says, I've got some incurable disease. And I pray, Lord, use this in my life so that I may be more like Christ. Yep, that's what it is. I'll close with just one illustration. Very personal illustration happened, oh, I don't know, over 30 years ago. Happened over 30 years ago. A deacon's wife in our church went to the doctor and got the bad news that she had cancer. They came home from the doctor. They called us. Said, Pastor, Phyllis just got back to the doctor. She has breast cancer. And it was advanced breast cancer. Eileen and I got in the car and drove over to their house, sat in their front room. She sat, Phyllis sat across the living room from me, and I was sharing with her a number of truths, and she looked me right in the face, and she said this, Pastor, if you expect me to say that I accept this from God and that God is able to bring me through this, and I'm just going to trust him and wait upon him and look to him. If you think that's how I'm going to respond to this, you are wrong. This is unfair. God is so unfair in my life. And she proceeded to tell me. Here's what she told me. You have three sons. They're all healthy. We have one son. And he has Tourette's syndrome. God has not been fair to me my whole life. I refuse to sit here and say that I'm going to trust God to use this for my good and his glory. And in about 18 months, she was gone. Listen, folks, are you willing to say, regardless of what God allows to come into my life, I know he's sovereign. I know he loves me. I know he's my help, my protector, my stay, my refuge. I know he has a script for my life. And the script for my life is to work all things out so that I might be conformed to the image of his son. And that might involve some hard and difficult things. God help us. That's the teaching of Romans 8, 28 and 29. Father... Somehow, if you can just use these verses in the lives of your people here this morning, it is possible that someone's here this morning who has never truly believed in Jesus Christ and received him as their Savior and Lord. And I would pray, Father, this would be the day of salvation for them. And maybe they're Christians here this morning. They're enduring difficult things. Hard things are in their life. And maybe they just need to be, be reminded this morning that you're in control, you're sovereign, and you love them with an everlasting love. And Father, you'll be their help and their stay, their safety, their protector. And working together with them, you have the power to work this out for their good and God's glory. Teach us these truths. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.